All right, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Tonight we're starting off the looking at the seven letters to the seven different churches. Remember, uh, the book of Revelation is, while it does deal with the apocalypse, while it does deal with all this prophecy, is also an epistle. It is also a letter written to the church at this time with the purpose of encouraging uh, hope encouraging the church that has been under some persecution uh, and God knowing that more persecution is coming. This letter was written to remind them, or the church at that time, uh, of being hopeful, of being persistent, of persevering, even when persecution comes. So tonight we're going to look at the, the letters to the first two churches, the letter to the church of Ephesus and Smyrna, and we're going to see the different messages that Jesus has to these churches. So before we get in, just to kind of give us kind of an understanding, uh, each of these seven letters kind of have a similar structure. It starts off with an, an introduction. The, the letter is directed to the angel of the church. So let's just look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, "...to the angel of the church in Ephesus." Now remember last week we talked about the angels being not necessarily real angels, not being uh, the leadership, but the angel is kind of this, uh, this manifestation, this personification of these churches is represented before God. And so kind of personifying all that this church is, both good and both bad, their strengths, their weaknesses, and that kind of matches into the context of the purpose of these letters. Then we see the introduction of Jesus as the author. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now it introduces to us Jesus as the author, and each kind of description that we see of Jesus at the beginning of these letters comes from uh, the description of Jesus we saw in Revelation chapter 1. When uh, John turned to see uh, who was speaking, and he saw Jesus, and he kind of lays out this vision of what he sees of Jesus, that's where he pulls these descriptions of Jesus. Then we have the, uh, the meat of the letter, so to speak, the main part, which for the most part, with the exception of uh, about two letters, it follows this kind of common theme. There's an encouragement. Hey, here's what you're doing good. There's some kind of chastisement. Here's what you're not doing good. And then there's a, a final encouragement seeking to build them up. And that final encouragement in the closing all delivers, kind of starts off in the same way. It delivers a promise, and it says, to the one who conquers. So if you looked at verse, verse 7 of chapter 2, about halfway through it, it says, to the one who conquers, I will grant you to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That is that each, each, each letter ends that same way. Now remember, he's talking to churches that have gone, undergone, or will be undergoing some kind of persecution. Even if that's not the direct purpose of each individual letter, the letter as a whole is written to the church going through persecution, or persecution is coming. So there's this constant reminder of conquering, this constant reminder of persevering, this constant reminder of, of staying the course even when things are difficult. All right. So what we're going to try to do is cover um, 
two churches a night. And one night we'll have to cover three because there's seven. So we'll be done or not done with. We'll be through the churches in about three weeks and then we'll get to all the, the, the crazy stuff that happens in heaven and on earth or the seven-year tribulation. We'll see all that stuff. So let's start off. Let's just read verses 1 through 7 first. And we'll look at the, the, the letter to the church of Ephesus. And then we'll read the rest of it and we'll look at the church in Smyrna. So verse 1 of chapter 2 says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans that I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. God, I pray that as we open up your word, as we look at the the letters to these churches, that you could also use those to encourage us, to challenge us, and to build us up as believers and as a church as a whole. God, we love you and we thank you. Please speak uh, loudly to us through your spirit and through your word. So in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, so let's look at Ephesus as a city because these cities and who they are play into what the church is dealing with and what the church is going through and the kind of the stuff that's being addressed in the letters. So Ephesus was a large city located at the mouth of the Castor River uh, on a gulf in the Aegean Sea. It was a, uh, a harbor or a port village where as traders came in, they would park their boats here. It was important uh, city for uh, commercial and an export center of Asia. So it was uh, big, it was bustling, it was one of the large cities uh, with about 250,000 people living there plus everyone who came in to trade, to sell their, their, their stuff. It had a 35-foot-wide road that was lined with pillars that took you from the port to the center of the city. Um, and it had a major theater on top of other things which would seat about 25,000 people. Now that's interesting uh, just because, and we'll look at this in a second, uh, but there's a story in Acts chapter 19 where Paul is in Ephesus and because he is preaching uh, the gospel and people are turning to Jesus Christ, that means they're turning away from their, their, their idol worship. Uh, one of the idol makers, a silversmith, kind of gets a mob together and they try to uh, attack Paul and Paul gets drugged to this theater. And it sits 25,000 people so it shows us that when this happens, there's a huge crowd of people that have followed this and seen Paul uh, kind of taken to this spot. 
Along with most cities at this time in this Asian area, they are under the control of Rome. They have engaged in emperor worship. Uh, the Romans worshipped their emperors. or they, There came a time when the Romans worshipped their emperors as gods. They had temples dedicated to Claudius, Hadrian, and Severus. And so um, much, and we'll see this a lot, but much like a lot of these cities, is there came a, a time when uh, the emperors began to demand worship as gods, and that's one of the reasons why Christians were so persecuted is because they would not worship the emperors as God. They would not bow to the emperors as their God. They have one God, so they would not bow to anyone else. The major religious attraction was the Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times the size of the Parthenon. Uh, It had 127 pillars of marble, and 36 of them were overlaid with gold and precious stones. This was a magnificent building, a magnificent sight to see, and it was all built around worshiping Artemis, who was a goddess of that time, her her fertility goddess. And so worship for her was was drenched in sexuality and perversion. And so this was the biggest temple in Ephesus. This was the, the biggest religion, so to speak, in Ephesus was this worship of Artemis, this uh, pagan goddess. All right. So that's kind of the city. So that's this, the Christians that live in Ephesus. They are in this city that's a, a port city. So there's constantly people coming and going. People with, with different cultures, people with different religions. They live in this city where the largest religion is the worship of this pagan goddess, this false goddess, not real. Uh, Artemis, whose worship, uh, because she is the goddess of fertility, was drenched in sexuality and perversion. She would have had uh, temple prostitutes where people would come in and that's how they worship. And so it was a, uh, think of Las Vegas and probably multiply it by 10 when it comes to the perversion in the city. And so this is the area that they lived in. This is where they existed. And so as Jesus writes this letter, we're going to see how that plays into it in just a second. But the first thing that we see in verse 1 is that Jesus' introduction in verse 1 is the one who holds the stars and walks among the lampstands. It's a reminder of Jesus' faithfulness to the church. Now remember, back in verse 20 of chapter 1, it told us what the lampstands were. And it told us what the, um, the stars were. The stars are the angels, so we talked about them. Uh, the angels were those, that, that manifestation, that representation of the church before God. And the lampstands were the church. They were symbolic of the church. So the two things that it tells us in verse 1, it says that to he, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. The word hold here in Greek is a very strong word, and it means one, and it indicates a very firm grasp. So one of the first things that we see with Jesus being the one who holds these churches, who holds the angels of the church, which is the representation of the churches, Jesus holds them in his hand. Remember, these are letters going out to churches that are facing or will be facing persecution. So this is a reminder that, look, no matter what you're going to go through, no matter what's going to come your way, no matter what's going to happen, Jesus holds you in his hand. He has a firm grip, and there is no one, there is nothing that can take you from his hands. 
Reminds us of Romans 8, 38 through 39, where Paul writes about what can separate us from the love of God. What can separate us from Him. And he goes through all of this stuff. Things uh, above or things beneath. Things created. Angels, demons, life, death, anything. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ. Jesus. It reminds us of the words of Jesus. Jesus, when he was talking about his sheep who hear him, who know his voice, he says that he will not lose them, that he holds them in his hand. And all that his Father has given them, he has not lost. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness to us, that God holds us, and that our salvation is not based on us, but it's based on who Jesus is and what he has done. The fact that he uh, walks among the seven golden lampstands, it's a reminder of God's presence within the church. That as long as the church is doing what it's supposed to do, and we're going to get into this a little bit more, but as long as the church is doing and being who it is supposed to be, and it is a church made up of believers seeking to glorify God, seeking to uh, see believers discipled and the lost saved, not that the church is perfect. None of these churches are perfect. Our church is not perfect. There's not a single perfect church because it's made up of imperfect people. So it's not going to be perfect. But as long as the church is seeking to do what God has called it to do, as long as it's built on truth and it is loving people and doing and being what God has called, the presence of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, He is here with us. He walks among us. He guides us. He protects us. He is, inhabits the praises of His people. And so it's a reminder that no matter what is coming, God is present and God is there and God holds you and God will hold you and God will protect you no matter what comes your way. But it's also a reminder of Jesus' possession of the church, that the church is His. He holds it in His hand. He walks among them. We are His possession. We have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own, but we are His. And it's a reminder of Jesus' authority over the church. Remember, we talked about how these, these letters kind of follow a similar structure. And one of the aspects in, in all the letters, except for one or two, uh, I think Smyrna and I think maybe Philadelphia, there's some kind of chastity. There's some kind of, hey, here's an area where you need to step it up. Here's an area where you're not doing all that great. Here's an area where you need to be better, a sin that you need to repent of. Jesus has the authority to tell the church, look, here's what is good that you're doing, what is righteous, what is obedient, what is following God, and here's an area where you have fallen short and you need to repent and turn around. And because Jesus holds the church in His hand, because He walks among the golden lampstands and have authority over the golden lampstands, which we'll see in a second, He has the authority to tell the church or to lead the church, to guide the church, to prune the church, and to lead the church closer to Him. All right, verses 2 and 3, uh, we see that Jesus praises this church because of their devotion to truth and the fact that they fight against false teachers. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. One thing that we see about this church of Ephesus is they are a church that stands on truth. 
When it comes to their doctrine, when it comes to what they believe, when it comes to being able to, uh, to suss out a false teacher or a false apostle from what is true doctrine, from what is true about who God is and who Jesus is and how they work in our lives and in the church, they are a church that has said, we will stand on truth. So if a false teacher comes our way, we're going to recognize that. We're going to make sure that they have no impact on us. We are a church that's going to hold up high the Word of God. Hold up high truth. And we're going to follow God. God is going to set forth our patterns. He's going to set forth our steps. And we are going to fight to stand for truth. Now, think about this because he uses a lot of words like endurance. You've been patient. You've endured. uh, Enduring patiently. uh, Bearing up for my name's sake. Remember, this is a city that the main worship is about Artemis and it's drenched in sexuality. This is a city that does not have the same desire for the morality that Scripture offers or the morality that comes along with being a Christian. And so there's one aspect that they're going to stand for truth and they're going to fight against false teachers. He said that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be false. So they know enough of the Word of God to be like the Bereans that we have seen in Acts who uh, heard the words of Paul, compared it to the Old Testament to find out if Paul was being honest or not. They, they do that. They compare what they hear to what they have of God's Word, to what they know of God's Word, to see if someone is a legitimate messenger from God. That's good. And it also means that when they live in this city that is culturally immoral, that is culturally perverse, that they are having to not just stand for truth when it comes to doctrine, but stand for truth when it comes to culturally, what are we going to accept as good uh, uh, and righteous and pure and holy when it comes to actions and how we live our life? And how much are we going to fit in with the culture around us? So some persecution, and we'll see this with Smyrna, is a direct attack. It is, it's arresting. It's being thrown in jail. It's, it's losing your possessions. It's, it's death. And yet some persecution comes from, hey, we're called to be holy, we're called to be different, we're called to to live a certain way, to have a certain moral standard that the world around us might not have. And this is the church of Ephesus. They are standing for truth, they are standing for God's word, they are standing for holiness against false teachers and against a culture that is morally depraved. So that's Jesus' encouragement. That's Jesus' praise for them. It's, hey, as a church, you are doing great holding up God's Word. And here comes their fault. Here comes their flaw. Here comes Jesus' chastisement. He chastises them because in their stand for truth, they have forgotten to love. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, This love that he is talking about, it is tied to both God and man. But I believe that it starts with your love for other men, your love for other people. And we're going to see how that is is tied to our love for God. Because what had happened is in their zeal to stand for truth, and their zeal to stand for the Word of God, and their zeal to stand for what was morally and religiously and doctrinally correct and right, they had quit loving people. In their desire to fight against... Excuse me. And their desire to fight against falsehoods and their desire to fight against false doctrines or false declarations of who God might be, and their desire to fight against false teachers, 
They had been more concerned with fighting and they had become hardened to loving people. So they looked at the people who were lost. They looked at the people outside of the church. and There was no compassion for them as sinners lost in their sin. There was no zeal to see them saved. There was no zeal to see their repentance. There was only hostility. They looked at those outside of the church, whether they be false teachers, whether they be people uh, engaged in the culture around them. And instead of looking at them like Jesus did as He looked on Jerusalem as those who were sheep without a shepherd. They looked at them and said, those are the bad people. Those are the ones who are trying to infiltrate our church. Those are the ones who are the false teachers. Those are the ones who are are persecuting us because we are culturally different. And instead of loving them, they kind of built up this wall, this wall of separation saying, that's them and this is us. We're doing what is right. We're standing for truth. And they were, but in their zeal to stand for truth, they had forgotten to love people. And that was God's call or Jesus' flaw with them as they have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, we know that to love people or to love God means to love people. As a Christian, loving God and loving people are intrinsically tied together. When Jesus Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did He say? He said, the first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second, love your neighbor as Yourself. Those are tied together. In John chapter 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Verse 35, he says this. He says, By, by this, all people will you know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So how do people know that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ? How is our our Christianity shown? How is our faith magnified in every real way to the world around us? That we love people. In 1 John 4.20 it says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The Bible ties in this, this reality that, that to love God means we love people. And if we cannot love people, it plays into us loving God. We cannot, according to God's Word, love God if we do not love people. First John, very black and white. You cannot love God. or He says he's a liar for he does not love his own brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so when, when, when Jesus lays out this flaw to this church, it's a pretty big flaw because He's saying, look, you've left your first love or you have not loved as you did at first. You're not loving people, and so therefore you're not loving God. Yes, you're standing for truth, and that is noble, and that is good, and that should be done. But at the same time, in your zeal for standing for truth, you cannot ignore the rest of the world. You cannot see the world as the enemy. You have to look at people with love and grace and compassion. If not, there's a huge problem that comes with that. Excuse me. So Jesus calls them to repentance. He calls them to repent by remembering the love that they have experienced and shared. Verse 5. It says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So the first thing that we see is there's this call to repentance. Remember where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So what does this mean to remember uh, what you've done, to, to do what you did before? Remember from where you have fallen. Remember, we love people. Why? 
because we love God. We love people because God loves people. We love people because... Because God has shown us such an immeasurable amount of love through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, that we are to to show that love, model that love to the world around us. We are to call to love as God has loved. And God loved His enemies. And God loved people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' love, or God's love, is perfected and manifested the best way that it can through Jesus Christ coming and dying for our sins. And so, when they are called to repent, where they are called to remember from where they were fallen and do the things that they used to do, that means, one, it's remember the gospel. It's remember what God has done for you. Remember how God has loved you. And then in turn, do what you did before. Love people. Look, it might mean that people come in that believe differently. It might mean that people come in that that are false teachers and they try to take over. And you've got to fight against that. You're doing that. Keep doing that. But you can't ignore loving people. You have to continue to love people. There was a time when this church got started. And we don't know, well, Paul started this church. uh, but, But... there was a time when they did love people. That's how the church grew, by them reaching out. And then somewhere along the line, they stopped that. They stopped doing what God had called them to do. They quit loving people. And this is a call to say, look, remember the gospel. Remember how you have been loved. And then show that love. Share that gospel with the world around you. That's their repentance. Remember what God has done for you and show that love to others. And he gives them a very stern warning if they do not repent. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's a pretty serious repercussion because remember, how was Jesus addressed or defined or described in the introduction of this letter? As the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the lampstands. It's the churches. So if he removes the lampstand, and he's the one who walks among the lampstands, he's basically saying, look, as a church, if you're not loving people and you are not loving God, remember those two are intrinsically tied together, then you cease to be a church. The church's purpose is to love God, honor God, and to love people, love the lost with the gospel, and love believers and see them grow in their faith. Jesus says, if you do not do that, if you cease loving, if you cease to love people, therefore you cease to love God as well. Your lampstand will be removed. That Jesus' presence, you're no longer from God's perspective considered a church until there is repentance. As a church, if you cannot love, as a church, if we ever got to a place where we did not love people, where we said kind of, uh, these four no more, we don't want anyone else in, we're shutting our doors, we're content with what we've got, we're content with who we've got, we've got our holy huddle, we're not going to love the outside world. Unless there is repentance, the promise, the, the warning given by Jesus here is, I will remove your lampstand. From my perspective, you will just be a group of people hanging out together. You will not be a church. Because when you cease to love people, you cease to love God. Now, in verses 6 to 7, as he closes out, there's a couple of things that he does. He, he calls him to persevere, but well, let's read. He says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, we see them a couple of times. We don't know a lot about them historically. We just know that they're a group of, of people who believe something wrong. They were enemies of the church. 
So he said, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, wouldn't that be a terrible thing to be said about you for all of eternity, that Jesus hates the things that you are about, that Jesus hates the things that you do? That's what he says about the Nicolaitans. He says, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so two things as he calls them to persevere. One, as he commands them to love, he's not commanding them to quit fighting for truth. He says, look, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. These are false teachers. This is a false doctrine. This is false stuff that they are pushing and preaching. You hate that. Great. So do I. That takes us back to how he started. You stand for truth. You fight against false teachers. You stand for what is right. The idea of that they need to repent and start loving people is sandwiched between these, the same idea but what God loves about the church or what Jesus loves about this church, that they stand for truth. And it's a reminder that, that we don't do one or the other. We don't say, okay, we're going to stand for truth and therefore not love people. Or we don't say, hey, we're going to love people and then we're going to let truth just kind of go by the wayside, which is what a lot of churches do nowadays. It's not one or the other. It's not either or. It is both and. We are to stand for truth. Stand for what is right. Stand for what is good. Stand for for solid doctrine. Stand for who God is and how God works. While at the same time, loving people who do not love God. Loving people who need to be saved, loving people who desperately need the gospel. It's not one or the other, it is both and. And as Jesus tells them, look, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, so do I. It's a reminder that continue to stand for truth. Don't let that drop down, but at the same time, lift up your love for others. Step up in your area of loving, but do not drop down in your area of standing for the truth. And then he says his, 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 his conquering statement to the one who conquers, I will grant them to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. <clears throat> it's a reminder of, look, persecution is hard. Whether it's direct attacks, whether it's living in this culture that you live in, I understand that. But look forward to what is to come. The tree of life, eternity, paradise in God, which is in the paradise of God. Excuse me. Remember that there is a hope, there is a a promise of something better than this world to come. That once life on this planet ends, we have the promise of paradise. So persevere, conquer, push forward. Remembering, remembering that what we have to look forward to is greater than what this world can throw at us. Alright, so now we move to the letter to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna, uh, as a city, was another large and wealthy city. Uh, it had the largest theater in Asia. It's famous for its games or for its sports. They, uh, they do track. They do things of that nature. Uh, this was an area that truly loved its sports. They had a famous road called the Street of Gold that had the temple to a local female deity on one end. And the other end of this road, it had a temple to Zeus. They also were involved in emperor worship. They won permission over 10 other Asian cities to build a temple to Emperor Tiberius. And and they had a very large Jewish population. And this is going to play into this letter that Jesus writes to this church. And the reason is, is because 
Rome had given Israel or had given the Jewish people um, a freedom to continue to practice their religion. Remember, Rome is a pagan nation. Rome, who did not have a separation of church and state, uh, their, their emperors, their Caesars were seen as gods and to be worshipped as God. That like ties in church and state 100%. Israel was given the freedom to not have to engage in that, but at least initially, um, to be able to continue to, uh, to worship how they saw fit. Remember, the church came out of the Jewish religion. It's really kind of the fulfillment of the Jewish religion because everything aimed to Jesus. And Jesus was the culmination of the Old Testament uh, moving us into the New Testament, the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. And so um, the Jews specifically hated Christianity. One, because they claimed the Messiah had come. And the, the Jewish people said, no, Jesus was not the Messiah. Christians said, yes, Jesus was the Messiah. So they, they considered them blasphemers uh, in that sense. But also politically, because there was this tie through the person of Jesus, who was a Jewish rabbi and who was the, the, the Messiah for Christianity, um, because there was this tie-in with Jesus, the Jews thought, look, if we don't do anything and they, they start persecuting the Christians, they continue to persecute the Christians, then we might lose our freedom of religion. So they kind of joined in for a multitude of reasons, but that was one reason kind of politically charged to jump in on the persecution of Christians so that they in turn could separate themselves from Christianity and not lose their freedom of religion, the freedom they had given to practice their religion. So those in Smyrna, not only do they live in a city that is, that is devoted to emperor worship, which is, is wrong and idolatrous, uh, but they are also surrounded by all of these uh, Jewish people who despise them for their faith, both religiously, religiously and politically. All right, so let's look at verses 8 through 11. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right, so we have this introduction of Jesus, uh, the, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is a reminder, not just of the gospel, but it's a reminder of God's sovereignty. It's a reminder of Jesus' power, that Jesus has conquered sin and death. He died and He rose again. Look, understand, persecution is coming your way. To Smyrna, we don't get the, hey, this is good, this is bad. With Smyrna, it is just a letter saying, look, I understand persecution is happening. I understand that a very fierce persecution for a a 10-day span is going to come your 
your way. I understand all of this that's about to happen, but remember, remember Jesus has already conquered death. If your life is required of you during this persecution, if it's, hey, denounce Jesus or suffer death, understand that Jesus has conquered death. Life awaits you in heaven. Life awaits you through Jesus. It's an encouragement. Remember that Jesus is the one who died and rose again to give us eternal life. So if your life on this earth ends because of your faith, because of persecution, remember that eternity awaits you in Jesus Christ. So as he starts off with his introduction of Jesus, the one who was first and last, who died and came to life, to remember that victory is promised in Jesus. He's already been victorious over death, and he has promised us victory over death as well. And that ties back in also to the end when he talks about the conquering will not be hurt by the second death. But we'll get there in a second. All right. Next in verse 9, we see that Jesus encourages them in their time of tribulation. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. So he says, look, I know you're going through tribulation. I know you're going through this persecution. And we see the, um, some of the immediate effects of the, of the persecution. It's tied to this poverty. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Their persecution, their tribulation was not just culturally. It was not just socially. They were losing their finances. They were losing their jobs. They were losing their houses. They were losing their land and their possessions for their faith. There was a time during the, um, I think the letters that we have are actually a little bit past this, but, but it shows us what was going on. Uh, there are letters written back and forth between Roman governors and Roman leaders where they discuss the, the persecution going on and, and how to engage in the persecution of Christians. And they talk about, hey, look, if someone's neighbor comes up and says, <clears throat> hey, my neighbor is a Christian uh, then the, the government would most, just on the word of that person, go and arrest that person. Go and arrest that Christian and give them a chance to either recant the name of Jesus or be thrown in jail. Have your property taken. Have your house burned down. Lose all of your possessions. So if you made your neighbor mad or your neighbor did not like you, much like these Jews uh, that he talks about here, if they did not like you, then all they had to do was go to the leaders and say, hey, look, my neighbor is a Jesus worshiper. He's a Jesus follower. And all of a sudden, you were done for. You'd lose your possessions. You'd lose your house. You'd lose your job. You'd be thrown in prison. And so he says, look, I understand your tribulation. I understand your poverty. I understand what this is costing you. But remember that you are actually rich. You're rich in the promises of God. You're rich in the love of God. And remember, this world is only temporary, and what you have promised is infinitely greater than what this world has to offer. So he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So, Jesus points out that their, their main persecutors are the Jews in this time or in this area. And he calls them basically fake Jews. He says they say that they are Jews, but they are not. So what does he mean by that? Are these people who, who don't worship in the synagogue, they don't follow the Old Testament, uh, how are they fake Jews? 
when it comes to nationality, when it came to their religion, they were Jewish people. These are people from Israel, born into one of the tribes of Israel. They were Jews who worshipped in the synagogue, who followed the Old Testament, who tried to keep the law as their way to salvation. From that sense, they were Jews. But from Jesus' perspective, there's been a, a transition that happened in Him. That the... Romans talks about how we have been grafted in, that that Gentiles have been grafted in into the vine of the promises that came through Israel that were fulfilled in Jesus. That we've been grafted into those promises. We've been grafted into that line. And along with that, Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. So basically, just being Jewish in your your bloodline does not make you a Jew. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So what Paul is saying there is, look, you've got these Jews who say, look, we are God's chosen people. The promises came through us. They came through Moses. They came through Abraham. We are God's chosen people. Uh, So because of that, we get the blessings of God solely because we are Jews. What Paul says in Romans chapter 2, because of Jesus Christ... Being a Jew in the line of receiving those promises, in the line of being God's chosen people, in the line of being the the sons and daughters, the children of God, it's not your nationality. It's not being a Jew outwardly uh, or physically. It is those who are circumcised of the heart. That's another terminology that Paul uses for salvation. That the old man has been cut off. the, The sin nature has been cut. And new life has been given. And so Paul makes the argument that that it's not your your Jewishness that makes you a child of God, but it's your faith in Christ that makes you a child of God. So as Jesus writes this letter, he says, look, they say they're Jews, and in a sense they are when it comes to their physicality, but they have rejected me as the Messiah. And now those who are the chosen people of God, those who receive the promises of God, is not based on your bloodline. It's based on where you have placed your faith. And he calls them a synagogue of Satan. And this isn't the first time Jesus has done this. In John chapter 8, this discussion goes on between the Jews and Jesus. And it goes like this. And they answered him. This is the Jews answering Jesus. Abraham is our father. So they come from Abraham. Remember the promises came to Abraham. Uh, Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your you're doing the works your father did. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus began to make this distinction all the way back in his ministry before Paul was even a Christian that those who are the followers of God, it doesn't matter about your genetics, it matters where your faith lies. And he calls these people fake Jews in in Revelation chapter 2 because though they are nationally Jews, they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah and they do not place their faith and trust in Him as the Messiah. 
And so he says, they are slandering you, and I understand that, but understand that they are not real Jews. They have not placed their faith and trust in me, but they are a synagogue of Satan. They are tools of the devil. They might come to you and say, look, I'm a Jew. I have more authority to speak than what you do as a Christian. But he says, no, look, they are of their father, the devil. So that's the, those who are persecuting them. Jesus was very firm in how He defined them. And then in verse 10, He gives them a warning of the short-term persecution coming their way. It says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He gives them a very specific timeline. Ten days, persecution is coming you very severe. You'll be thrown into jail. Some of you to be tested. Understand that is coming. He is preparing them for that. And then he tells them that if they are faithful, they will receive the crown of life. Now, all believers receive a crown of life. This is not talking about kind of that royal crown. Remember we said that the the, the games were popular there, sports were popular. When someone won, when they persevered in their game, when they were victorious in their games, they received that that crown, that, that garland, that wreath that would set on their heads. And Paul, or excuse me, Jesus, Jesus is affirming to them that victory comes when you persevere. Victory comes when you are faithful. Victory comes when you do not get up or give up because things get difficult. And then in verse 11, he reminds them of the promise of life and victory over death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Remember Jesus, uh, His introduction was that He was the one who died and came to life. And because of His resurrection, we've been given victory over judgment. We've been given victory over death. Our guilt and our shame have been removed. So when we die on this earth, as we go and stand before the throne of God for judgment, we are allowed into heaven, not based on what we have done, but based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. So that second death, that eternal punishment, we do not face because of what Jesus Christ has done. So his reminder to them um, that the one who conquers, the one who endures, the one who is faithful, the one who trusts God and finds their victory in Him will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus has paid our price. Because of Him, we do not face that judgment that is to come. This is a reminder to that church. Yes, there is a first death that everyone has to suffer. You might die of old age. You might die because you're thrown in jail and you rot in jail as a Christian. You might die as you're thrown to the, to the wild beasts or to the, the gladiators uh, uh, and, and to be killed as a, as a spectator sport. There's no telling how you might die. But understand this. Everyone will die. The first death is, is everyone's going to happen. That's not what we try to escape. What we are escaping is that second death, that eternal judgment. And because your faith and trust are in Jesus, that has been paid for, that has been taken care of, that we don't have to worry about that anymore because Jesus has wiped away our guilt, He has wiped away our shame, and we are made whole and complete and perfect in Him. 
So this is a reminder to these churches. It's an encouragement to these churches that though persecution is coming, stand firm. Because life on this earth, there might be times when it is difficult. But the things that we have been promised, the future that we have been promised, is infinitely greater than anything that this world has to offer, even life. 